The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome to this Monday edition of Scorebox uh, with Mandy Drury and myself, Steve Sedgwick. And these are your headlines. The death toll from the coronavirus reaches 80 with more than 2,700 people infected. Whilst China's Xi Jinping warns of a grave situation and extends the Lunar New Year holiday in an effort to stem the spread of the virus. Fears rattle global markets whilst investors pile into safe haven assets with 13 countries worldwide confirmed to have cases of the infectious disease. Matteo Salvini's Lega party fails to unseat a leftist stronghold during regional elections in northern Italy in a vote seen as a bellwether of the right-wing leader's possible return to power. It's reportedly poised to approve a restricted role for Chinese tech giant Huawei in Britain's 5G rollout, despite an escalating US pressure campaign. So welcome to the show. Our top story, of course, as you're aware, is the death toll from the coronavirus. It has risen to 80, whilst a further 2,700 people have been infected. That's according to China's Health Commission. The majority of infections remain concentrated in the central Chinese city of Wuhan, where the virus is believed to have emerged late last year. Wuhan and other major cities in China's Hubei province remain on lockdown. However, the virus is spreading beyond China, with cases reported across Asia, Australia, the US, Canada and France. Now, the Chinese President Xi Jinping has held a special government meeting where he warned the country is facing a, quote, grave situation and that the spread of the coronavirus is accelerating. Meanwhile, the Chinese Premier Li Keqiang is in Wuhan to oversee efforts to contain the virus, according to a government statement. Beijing says it will also extend the Lunar New Year holiday, incredibly significant this, by three days to February the 2nd. This is in the hope that they will slow the spread of the disease. Good morning to you, Good morning to you as well, Steve. Good morning, everybody. And indeed, it was that the Lunar New Year holiday was going to originally end on January the 31st, so it is significant indeed. Well, states and officials around the world are scrambling to contain the infection. Hong Kong has banned the entry of visitors from China's Hubei province. That is where the virus remains concentrated. Wuhan is a major city within Hubei. Well, meantime, the US, France and several other countries have announced plans to evacuate their city citizens out of Wuhan. Indeed, there are already reports of, uh, of shortages of supplies and really key things like baby formula and nappies. Also, President Trump has praised China's handling of the outbreak. The US leader tweeted that Beijing had been working very hard to contain the spread and that he greatly appreciated, quote, their efforts and transparency, ending the message with his personal thanks to President Xi Jinping. Steve? So let's take a look at uh, markets around the world and the impact this is having on various asset classes. You'll note that the US indices uh, at the tail end of last week did have uh, a tough session. If you were along the market, uh, the S&P 500 down 0.9 of 1%. Now, we have got a four-day losing streak on the major US indices, but 
I hasten to add, we are not moving dramatically lower yet. And this is actually a key point. Even though we saw 170 points coming off the Dow in Friday's session, and we've seen four sessions to the downside, actually, the fact of the matter is we are only week to date, we were down 1.2%, 1.3% off the record high hit previously. So a measured calm reaction from these markets as well. Uh, I know on Friday, healthcare was the worst performing sector, down 1.7%. For the week, we saw energy down 4.3%. Again, a very logical reaction when you think about the uh, economic capacity in China, one of the largest users, of course, uh, oil product on the planet, having a large region the size of Germany or France, for instance, shut down economically as well. Uh, Let's take a look at the Asian indices again. We are seeing some bigger declines, indeed, as you would expect. So we look at the topics over in uh, Japan, the broad brush index there down 1.6%. The Nikkei down the best part of 500 points in session, 2% lower as well. Uh, And the Nifty 50 down 0.5 of 1%. Oil markets, I mentioned this, I mentioned declines on oil stocks on the week as well. We have seen the three-month change now coming down 4.4%. Again, coming off from around about that $70 level uh, early in January. Now we are trading, as you can see, 59 bucks on Brent and WTI trading around 52 87 as well. So despite the best actions, of course, late last year of OPEC and OPEC plus allies uh, to shore up the production, it's the demand side of the equation you need to look at. It's not just, of course, at supply. Let's have a look at what are deemed to be safe havens as well. Spot gold, as you would expect in this environment, would catch a bid. To be honest, though, spot gold has been on a tear anyway for the last 12 months. So it is just compounding that 10 bucks upside in this current session, having settled at 15.71 on Friday, currently trading around 15.80 as well. Uh, Again, very calm pair between the US dollar and the Japanese yen. Very often you can actually make a very good case for either of those being safe haven. But in this case, the Japanese yen just catching a little bit of a 0.21% bid there. And the US 10 years trading at 169, uh, 1.639 yield. And, you know, it's actually probably not a bad thing, is it, Steve, that so many of the Asian markets, including Australia, are closed at the moment because otherwise you can quite often lurch from headline to headline without really sort of uh, having a lot more meaning behind it. You know, you see a headline like, you know, two more cases of coronavirus in Australia and suddenly the market drops. So it's probably not bad that they can just step back, be closed and digest a lot of the information. Yeah, like, a, like a natural circuit breaker. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. OK, well, let's take a look at what's happening with the Chinese yuan. Uh, so the dollar yuan has been surging. So a lot of coronavirus stress being shown up in the Chinese currency in offshore trade. Uh, so uh, you can currently see here that the dollar versus offshore yuan uh, up by one and a half percent, sitting at 6.97 onshore yuan, 6.94%. And I believe at the moment that the offshore yuan is around a three-week low. And of course, we'll continue to see pressure for as long as it looks like the virus is not contained. Let's also take a look at the impact on the equity market with the MSCI China ETF. Uh, over the past seven days, has dropped by 6% there. Uh, so we're currently down by 1.7%, I think is on pace for the first negative week since November the 15th. And uh, is looking like the worst week since at least early 
August of last year, Steve. And, uh, you know, look, there's going to be a real knock-on effect to the Chinese economy. You know, just when we saw yeah. SARS in 2002, 2003, the economic impact was maybe up to one percentage point. But remember that this is something that, you know, we're, we're a number of years later. Um, the incubation period for coronavirus is 10 to 14 days, during which time you may have no symptoms, but you are contagious. The difference with SARS was you became contagious after you showed the symptoms. So we're dealing with a whole different animal here. Sure. Yeah, absolutely. Very interesting. Look, I mean, all I can say is I'm indebted to people such as Carl Weinberg of uh, High Frequency Economic, just putting some numbers out there for us to digest as well. Uh, as I mentioned when I was looking at the wall earlier, uh, Wuhan, a city of 11 million people. The province of Hubei is totally 60 million people, yeah. which, as I mentioned, is the equivalent of the whole population of France uh, or perhaps even the working population of Germany as well uh, in the context of a nation of 1.4 billion people. The produce uh, coming out of this province is 7% of the national GDP uh, and industrial output. And uh, Karl Weinberg's also crunched some numbers on the economic output that could be lost, depending on whether companies have five or six day working weeks, uh, economic output reducing per day by 0.3 to 0.3. 0.4%. But for firms with six-day weeks, adding in Saturdays, you could lose up to 4 to 5% of potential output as well. Uh, so a significant loss of output from this region as well. Uh, also, this uh, brings big ramifications about imports and exports out of China, whether they would be able to leave ports Absolutely. or indeed enter ports as well. But the point that Carl makes as well is when we've looked at natural disasters, uh, historically uh, and their effect on broader GDP. When you see a delayed consumption or delayed production, very often the good news is that we do actually see that ramping up at a later date uh, once the crisis has reached its demand. apex. Yeah. And I think you make some excellent points about the knock-on effect to some of the trading partners, and notably Australia, which you know digs a lot of stuff out of the ground and sends it over to sure. China, like you know coal and iron ore to make steel. So you know when you do look at the numbers already, even just the very first day of the Lunar New Year holiday in China, you know, you're seeing, for example, civil rail travel and civil air travel drop by over 40 percent. Um, and that's just the very first day. The numbers are only going to escalate as there yeah. are more restrictions on travel put on those mm. millions of, uh, of Chinese consumers. And, you know, for a country like Australia, it's a double whammy because they've already had a suffering in the month of January. It's in been their a horrendous start to the, the year for fires. Australia. Yeah. So if suddenly you've got all these Chinese tourists who are not going to Australia mm. because of their travel restrictions, plus the fact that tourism, international bookings have dropped by about 40 to 50% already because of the bushfires, it really is a major economic impact on Australia and the other trading partners. Um, another thing to mention is, are we, are we prepared? I mean, we haven't really seen a global pandemic of major scale since the 1918 Spanish flu. The world's population is four times bigger since then. We have like over a billion people crossing borders yeah. every single year. I, I, I'm going to caution you there because um, well, the Spanish flu, uh, and which from 1917 to 1919, uh, and again, off the top of my head, I'm pretty sure killed more people than the First World War. So I think we need to be careful about this and, and, and extrapolating something that has quarantined 2,700 mm -hmm. people uh, to perhaps the worst pandemic the world has ever seen. So I think we're a long way away from that, if I may we say so. We are a long way away from that. But at the same time, what is important important is for everyone to dust off 
their playbooks, right? We have playbooks, for example, from SARS, from Ebola, and we yeah. need to start putting a plan in place. I know yeah. the WHO has said it's not yet a global emergency. It is an emergency for China, mm. but not for the globe. And certainly the markets here in Europe rebounded on the back of that news. But we need to have a plan in place. And I think unless there is a plan in place and we feel mm. confidence mm. that the governments have got this, that China is under control, it's not under-reporting, and that things are going to be contained, there will be a crisis of confidence, Look, and confidence I, I, can I, translate into a drop in. Sure, but I, I am very clearly, and as all our viewers are aware, no medical expert, and this is not my forte as well, but I would suggest there are many, many uh, communicable diseases and, and many other illnesses out there that are far greater killers than this coronavirus at the moment as well. The common flu, for instance, let alone the Spanish flu, sure. uh, kills tens of thousands of people every winter. There are all kinds of other illnesses which are far more dramatic in their scale than we're seeing at this at the moment. So I, I think it's a question of being calm on this. And I think what we are seeing is markets is a measured reaction in many areas as well. For instance, the oil price, again, a measured decline from the recent highs as well. Mm. The only thing I would say about asset classes is getting it back to our wheelhouse is that one, we We've looked very forensically at the economic activity that could potentially loss. But I think also the fact that markets are at such a high valuation compared to where they have been historically perhaps leaves them on rockier ground. And the other factor that you will know, and especially from your time in the States as well, the one factor they can't put in is confidence. And once confidence is dented in markets, it takes a very long time to come back again. that was my point. It all comes down to confidence. Also, if you just take a look at the bond yield, because while those uh, markets have been sort of near or at record highs, over the past couple of weeks, the, the last week has seen a massive drop in the US bond yield from above 1.8 to 1.68. Listen to right? us, these days that's a massive drop, but it's true, you're right. It, it is a massive down. drop. It's a drop of about 8.2%. Yeah. And they always say the bond, the bond traders are the clever people, the, ple- the, the clever guys Do and gals. Do you think gals. so? I, I worked in a bond pit for a while, I'm not so sure, but anyway, carry on. <laughs> oh, <laughs> is that a humble brag? <laughs> no, no but, but, but so, so, so if you're a watcher of the yield, you might say, what was that flagging to us? Sure. There's, there's some concern out there in the markets and as you say we were almost priced to perfection something had to give brilliant well thank you very much indeed for that right okay let us move back to uh, domestic european politics fascinating to look at what happens in italy next i spoke to the italian finance minister last week very confident that uh, there will be no return of salvini well it has been a setback for mr salvini the right-wing leader's lega party failing to upset a leftist stronghold in regional elections the latest from emilia romagna coming up next and if you can't get enough of Squawk Box, which I'm sure is the case, be sure to tune into our very own podcast. You can head to cnbc.com, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to get your podcast to have a little listen and download today's episode. And for our listen- listeners, do stick around for more. And a quick look at the opening calls for European markets. We are seeing a rebound according to the spread betters, uh, healthy gains across the board. If you enjoy Squawk Box Europe, check out The Brave Ones podcast. The series explores the rise of some of the world's most successful entrepreneurs. Through exclusive interviews with family, friends and colleagues, The Brave Ones podcast features stories of determination, resilience and ingenuity. Available on Apple Podcast, Spotify and Google Play. The Brave Ones podcast presented by Credit Suisse.
Right, welcome back to the show. Matteo Salvini's pl plan to return to power dealt a bit of a setback this weekend, providing a uh, moment of respite for Italy's shaky government. All eyes were fixed on the local elections, especially in Emilia-Romagna. Uh, Calabria as well was uh, voting, where the right-wing leader's Lega party in the former fell short of a historic upset in the region long considered a leftist stronghold. Uh, Willem, this is fascinating. Um, he's been campaigning there since November, I'm told, as well. Um, just give us the rundown on what actually happened in Emilia-Romagna. Good morning, my friend. Yeah, good morning, Steve. He's, he's been campaigning here, holding rallies on a daily basis, several times a day across this region. We're in Bologna, one of the major cities inside Emilia-Romagna, and Salvini really pushing to try and upset the Democratic Party that's really held power in this part of Italy since the Second World War. So it would have been a real shock had he managed to change that dynamic. As it turned out, the PD, the Partito Democratico, the Democratic Party, they held on to 51% of the vote here. They've maintained their control over the governorship. The concern was that if Lega could show how strong they were here, members of the Partito Democratico down in Rome might think that their continued coalition with the Five Star Movement was dragging them down in these regional elections and would mean they'd lose control of further regions in May and June when there's another set of elections. They lost power in Calabria. The Lega held on to their majority down there, but it did seem to give them a bit of a boost here by holding on to Emilia-Romagna, meaning that on the national level, they are still vaguely secure as part of that coalition government. Salvini will have to try and find another approach. He is definitely ahead when it comes to national polling. If there was a snap election now, all the predictions from analysts suggest that he would win that. And so the coalition of Five Star Movement and Partido Democratico, who worked, of course, last summer to keep him out of power because of fresh elections, would seem like they would continue to survive. Um, OK, so the government... Uh teeters on or totters on for a little bit longer as well. What's the, going to be the next focus uh, where, where Mr. Salvini will be pushing, Willem? Well, there's going to be a range of regional elections in May and June across parts of the country. That will probably be where he expends most of his energy in the next few months, Steve. What we saw yesterday, though, really was a collapse for the five-star movement. They polled incredibly low both here and down in Calabria. And remember, they were the largest party in those elections back in early 2018. They seem to have completely lost ground in vast parts of Italy. And going into fresh elections, whether that comes this year or when they should be scheduled in a couple of years' time, it looks like the five-star movement is a bit of a spent political force at the moment. Excellent. Willem, thank you very much indeed for the coverage there as well. Uh, Willem Marks in... Uh Emilia Romagna or Bologna to be Okay, well, let's uh, continue the conversation on Italian politics with Franca Wolf, Western Europe analyst with Verisk Maplecroft. Franca, thank you so much for joining us, Bryson, early this Monday morning. So, a Salvini's attempt to win over Emilia Romagna appears to have failed. What are the broader implications here? Failed to win in Emilia Romagna. But at the same time, he has made massive inroads in that region. He's um, won some municipal elections. And I think it's not to say that the government is stable now, but there's more instability coming. I was amazed to see in your report that that's all of Italy's 65 past governments have collapsed prior to the completion of their terms. There's a strong historical precedent here yeah. for things to go pear-shaped. So do you think that there's a, a good chance the government will collapse before the end of the year? 
Yes. I think there is a high chance. We forecast that at um, around 71% at Verus Maplecroft. And I think the risks are here going forward, the um, leadership contest in the five-star movement, mm -hmm. but also it's just the, the election dynamics at the moment. We see that um, the governing party keep losing elections. I mean, they've won here in Emilia-Romana, but the fact that it had to be turned into such a monumentous election rather than just a regional election that's been in the hands of the left-wing parties for 75 years does tell something for the government. Franca, I spoke to Mr. Gualtieri last week, the finance minister as well, and I, despite my, I, I thought, quite forceful probing, uh, everything was awesome. Uh, there was no problem in the banks, there was no problem with the reforms, there was no problem with the government, there was no problem in Emilia-Romagna as well. I've got to say, is Mr. Gualtieri wrong? Yes, I would uh, think so. I think long-term thinking, I mean, what else is he supposed to say? He really has to keep the government together and they have to kind of portray unity at the moment, but at the same time, there's so much coming forward just that will um, risk that government stability. And f the PD is maybe performing slightly better than the, than the M M5S movement, mm. but at the same time, um, even the PD has struggled. It's like it hasn't really increased its vote share. And in those regional elections you've seen, they're also struggling. So there's lots of ideological divisions and that leadership compass. Absolutely. And Italian politics, which is always fragmented, uh, uh, fragmented. it always appears to me that it's even more fragmented now. But the populist movement is fragmenting as yes. well from whether it's for, uh, Fratelli d'Italia uh, to the Five Star uh, to the Sardines movement, the anti-Salvini mm. movement as well. So is there, a, if there were elections, is there a consensus that is large enough that would keep Salvini out of power? I, at the moment, I wouldn't think so. It's just they and they really pull together those numbers and it's just um, taking them all together. It w I would struggle to see how any other coalition would come together. And I think then they would also probably have a democratic issue. Mm -hmm. Then how can you, for a party that's been, or for a coalition government that's been losing in polls, since the 2018 elections, how can then they say in the next election, oh, we have the legitimacy, legitimacy to carry on? So to bring it back to our bread and butter, the markets and the market impact here, uh, do you feel that we're going to see a, a widening of bond yield spreads between, between Italy and Germany? And what kind of uh, relationship do you think we could have in future between Rome and Brussels? Yeah, we think there is definitely a risk of that happening. At the moment, um, following the election, you first saw a little bit of a spike in the bond mm -hmm. spread yield. Oh, uh, but then it calmed down a little bit since I think the general idea is the government will hold on for a couple of months at least. Um, but yes, I mean, when Salvini was in government, we saw massive tensions with Brussels, mm. the, the risk of excessive deficit procedure. And I think as soon as like going forward with the March um, um, leadership contest and the Five Star Movement and all of that, that will just continuously lead to spikes. Well, Italy is already in your extreme risk category in the yes. public debt uh, category, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, just after Greece, it's the, the country with the highest um, debt burden. And considering that it's now with the UK leaving going to be the third largest economy in Europe, there's more risk there. Mm. In terms of the, the ripple through in Brussels as well, I mean, you like I and Amanda, I'm sure, has been watching it from afar. 
the, the, the oscillating relationship between Italy and the European Commission has been extraordinary to watch. The, the, the open combat almost uh, just over a year ago to the, the gentle, uh, wonderful situation where you have uh, a European parliamentarian as the finance minister, the aforementioned Mr. Gualtieri, uh, and then you've got a former prime minister, Mr. Gentiloni, again, a fully paid up member uh, of the project uh, in Brussels as the commissioner from Italy as well. Despite the fact that you've got these gentlemen who are creating a great bridge between the EC and Italy. It's going to be a mess, that relationship going forward, isn't it? Yes. I think under the current government, they're really trying to keep that stability and they've seen the, the spikes in market instability or market concerns during the Salvini and um, Five Star Movement government. But um, yes, I think when we have um, Salvini again in government, that's just going to lead to constant spikes because that really feeds into his whole rationale of governing, the kind of mixing it up, being anti-establishment, uh, showing Brussels how things should be done. Talking of, sorry, you're going to say, no, no, you're no, say no, no. I heard a <gasps> ready, ready to like launch into a brand new question there. So, so the talking of Brussels, um, you know, now that Donald Trump has uh, put to bed some of the Chinese issues with the signing of the phase one deal, um, obviously he's turning his sights on, on, on areas such as the EU. Do you expect things to get very, very tense in future months here? Or do you think that Brussels will think, I'm just going to sit this one out and hope that maybe Donald Trump isn't in office at the end of the year? Um, we think that is precisely what you're saying. I think there is going to be um, a risk spiking um, with tensions. Yeah, um, Trump now in an election year, he really wants to feed again into that rationale of um, making America great again, um, uh, standing up to those um, budget or oh, the trade deficit um, partners. And now that China is a little bit out of the question, the focus is definitely mm -hmm. turning to Brussels. Um, but yeah, there, there will be a risk going forward. But then also, I think the strategy of Brussels is very much let's keep it going, let's wait and see until November, maybe there's someone much more amenable. But I wonder how amenable. risky that is, because for example, if it's not Donald Trump, I mean, maybe it's like better the devil you know, you know, if you'll excuse the expression, because, you know, for example, if you had a Democrat in office, I mean, Bernie Sanders, for example, mm -hmm. is starting to surge in certain public polls. There is the potential that a Democrat traditionally could be even more protectionist. I mean, we no. think the big difference would maybe be that just the rationale or the, the rhetoric more so. Mm. With Trump, that's really been Europe and America, you, you know, traditionally have been the closest allies and that is very much in question if you just read the media articles. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.